0: God is here to tell me that nobody is beyond redemption and that we are more than the worst thing we've ever done and we are more than the worst thing that's ever happened to
1: us. Okay. Okay, One, two, ready, go. Welcome to the Called to Be Bad podcast. My name is Mariah Martin and I feel called to be bad. It turns out I'm not the only one. Join us as we dig into all things bad, scandalous, deviant, you know, the stuff that makes good church folks squirm in the sanctuary. Why? Well, because sometimes the scandalous is spiritual, deviant is divine, and bad is beautiful. Say yes to the call, and let's see what holy trouble we get into today. Hello, Hillary. How are you doing, Mariah? I'm great. Welcome to Call to Be Bad. This is Hillary Taylor, and Hillary is going to introduce herself today.
0: Hey there, friends. My name is Reverend Hillary Taylor. I'm an ordained United Methodist Minister. I was originally ordained out of the South Carolina Conference, and I live in the South Carolina area, in sort of the upstate broadly. I graduated from Furman University in 2012 from, with an undergraduate degree in psychology, a minor in poverty studies. And from there, I became a United Methodist missionary. I served in South Africa for about a year and a half. I served in Miami, Florida for another year and a half. So a total of three years as a young adult missionary with the United Methodist Church and Global Ministries, which is the missionary wing of the United Methodist Church. After that, I went to seminary at Emory University and Candler School of Theology, specifically within Emory University. Mm. I focused on conflict transformation, I also focused on religious education, and I did a lot of prison chaplaincy there. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you'll hear a little bit more about that as we talk later. And that prison chaplaincy really uh, launched me into uh, an interest in lots of other kind of chaplaincy related things. Once I graduated with my MDiv in 2018, I went back to South Carolina and served for three years as a United Methodist pastor in the small town of Saluda. I got ordained out of Saluda. And then uh, sort of right in the middle of 2021, decided to leave the local church and spend Mm. some time doing clinical pastoral education to broaden my chaplaincy skills. And now I am the executive director of South Carolinians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. I'm a Mm. full-time executive director. The mission of South Carolinians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty is to abolish the death penalty and catalyze criminal justice reform through public advocacy Grassroots organizing and community mobilization.
1: Hmm. Um, so you are no longer doing any sort of chaplaincy work. This is this is your full time. This is your full time job.
0: This is my full time job. I do moonlight as a hospital chaplain okay. in one of the local yeah. hospitals. So you know, once a chaplain, always a chaplain is I think <laughs> some of the work of chaplaincy. Yeah. I also yeah. do some work with. Uh, at least one person on death row here in South Carolina, which I'm sure okay. again we'll get into.
1: Yeah, some chaplaincy work specifically with some good chaplaincy work. Yes. Okay. Yeah, my dad is is a chaplain, so chaplaincy work is 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 close to home. Um, and he also teaches the uh, CPE classes, um, clinical pastoral education, and um, I've always wanted to go through um that course uh with a little bit of trepidation because i know it's really intense but um anyways yeah uh, and so today we are not talking about chaplaincy well kind of i mean it's all it's all connected um but we're going connected. <laughs> yeah um but we're going to be talking about the death penalty and specifically the work that you are doing to um abolish the death penalty um and work for criminal justice reform is that what you is that the phrasing that you used that's the phrasing Um, absolutely yes perfect i'm glad my brain (laughs) grabbed onto that you Um, are
0: doing so good i am so impressed
1: (laughs) yes my brain is braining today (laughs) um anyways uh so before we get into all things death penalty cheery episode today um I am curious what you are drinking.
0: I'm being healthy and I'm drinking water, but I am drinking water out of my favorite mug. As you'll see, it is a nice glossy mug with the exception of this kind of maple leaf outline. Uh There's a nice little drip mark right here. Um, I got this mug when I was a a pastor in Saluda and you know, Mm. sometimes how, Your parishioners do things that are technically against your, you know, bylaws and your book of discipline. Well, they had like a raffle, and so uh, I entered the raffle, you know, because the uh, proceeds were going to go to missions. Again, like this is not actually what my church is supposed to do, but here we are. <laughs> and I won. And so that was really exciting because I really, you know, lots of people had put in lots of different tickets. And here I was, you know, just like trying to be a nice supportive person, didn't donate too, too much. But I love this mug. It is um, one of my most treasured pieces uh, because of the artwork and because of the people who donated it and because of the event that I was supporting.
1: Yeah, that is gorgeous. I love a good a g- good handmade pottery. Just really gets me. Yeah, that's really pretty. I love the dripping. Um, yeah, and uh, I am drinking coffee today, and because we have, uh, you know, a heavier episode, I decided we needed a good old hedgehog mug um, just to remind us of the little things in life, um, the little joys. Uh, Hillary is a fellow animal lover, so hopefully you can appreciate the the hedgehog mug. <laughs> I love a good hedgehog, absolutely. <laughs> My friend Julia and co pastor, she has a hedgehog named Petey, and uh, I got to hold it. I'm actually I figured out that I'm allergic to hedgehogs, like their little oh. quills uh, give oh, no. me a rash, but. Petey is so adorable, and I didn't know that my life needed to see a hedgehog eat. It is the cutest thing I've ever seen. They have these, like, little teeth. Okay, I'll be done. But anyways, it's, it made my entire life. It was so cute. Okay. Um, so anyways, <laughs> hedgehogs, death penalty, that connects. Hello, beloved baddies. A quick break to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul a nonprofit that supports and amplifies the voices of edgewalkers through art that catalyzes change, laughter that brings us together, and a soul awakening to the creative spark within us. The support from the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul has meant the world to this podcast, so I highly encourage you to check out their website, arthumorandsoul.com, to see their other featured artists and projects. If you want to support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon or get in touch. Now I'll let you get back to this episode of Called to be Bad. So, yeah, we start with definitions normally. I mean, I think people know what the death penalty is, but can you tell us a little bit about it? Why does it exist? How does it work? Um... Yeah, I know. And we could probably talk the entire podcast about that, but just maybe like a little snippet for context.
0: We could. And before we do that, what I want to do is say that this episode certainly comes with a trigger warning. We'll be talking about violence, um, sometimes graphic violence. I'm probably not going to get into like actual graphic violent details, but just so you know, we will be mentioning graphic violence. We will be mentioning um, assault Um, we may be mentioning sexualized violence. We will be mentioning historical traumatic things like racism, heterosexism, sexism in general, um, and violence against people with mental illness. So, um, just so everybody is aware, just brace yourselves. Um, this, this is, this is hard work and it's very easy for people who do this work to become extremely desensitized Mm -hmm. to it. So Um, yeah, I would appreciate feedback from you, Mariah, and and any listeners, if there's any way that I can improve my own ways of discussing this topic. So
1: um, take care of yourselves
0: appropriately, friends.
1: Yeah, I I really appreciate that. Uh, I often put a content warnings, but a content warning afterwards in the description. But uh, it's nice to have an an audio content warning for those who don't see it. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you, Hillary.
0: Yeah, so capital punishment, the death penalty, this is state-sanctioned homicide. This Mm. is state-sanctioned murder. And in different states across the United States, there are about 12 different crimes that you can be charged with that will, you know, preclude you, um, Mm. you know, or allow you to be sentenced to um, as a capital defendant. I'm not going to get into exactly what those are today, but you're free to look Mm. them up. For yourself, And if you want to specifically look at South Carolina, you can definitely look that up for South Carolina. But it ranges from everything to, you know, premeditated murder, you know, also like the graphicness of the kind of murder that that mm-hmm. somebody may do, and also has has been used for conspiring to kill somebody. So murder for hire is the, the charge that a lot of people will do doesn't mean that you actually participated in killing somebody, you just helped plan it. So Again, lots of different there's a lot of space for, you know, who gets to be charged, why they are charged, what exactly they are charged with and why that makes them eligible for capital punishment, but that's kind of the basis of it. In the United States, there are a few ways that we allow people to be executed by the state, most Often it is through the practice of lethal injection. So this is essentially injecting poison into somebody's body, but also other legal quote unquote legal ways that people are executed in this country are through firing squad, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, There are some States that use a kind of gas chamber mechanism. And then there are some States that have used, um, certainly hanging in the past. In South Carolina history, the earliest sort of formal execution that is recorded is in 1718. There was a pirate who was executed, but we've also had people who've been burned to death. Uh, we've had people who've certainly, you know, been been lynched. And then the electric chair is probably one of the most horrific ways that people are executed and legally executed. South Carolina is one such place that does have the electric chair And we've had the electric chair since 1912.
1: And so how does the specific mode of execution get chosen? Like who decides that? Is that, yeah, is there like a level of intensity? And if the crime is more intense, then the the death is more gruesome. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Great question. So people who are on death row actually choose their execution method. And so what you see, yes. mm -hmm. So what you see since 1976 is that people will usually choose, um, they didn't have lethal injection for, you know, until, you know, several decades ago, but in South Carolina, we've had lethal injection since the nineties, but before then it was mostly the electric chair. And that was pretty horrific to watch. Mm -hmm. Now what happens in some places is the electric chair becomes challenged as a cruel and unusual punishment. Mm. And so a lot of places, even though they may have the electric chair, are not able to use it. And lethal injection becomes the main way that people decide they want to be executed. Um, What we are seeing right now, though, is a lot of places are having, a lot of states rather, are having difficulty finding the drugs to execute Mm. people who are on their death row cells are on their death row ranges so you have a lot of states that functionally don't use the death penalty but have it on the books
1: but haven't been able to execute people for five ten sometimes more years because they can't find that specific drug or cocktail of drugs or whatever it is because drug companies will not sell it to them there but are from like an ethical y- standpoint they won't sell it to yes them.
0: Yes. So what you're seeing now is pharmaceutical companies affiliated with the FDA here in the United States have said, wow, we really don't want our drugs to be used to kill people. We want our drugs to be used to heal people. States in the United States, please do not. Right, right, exactly. States, you know, please do not create legislation that would make it easier for you to find these drugs on the black market. Please do not make it easier for yourselves to find, you know, sort of Uh, People who might have malintent to go behind the law and concoct these drugs for you. And so what you're seeing a lot of states do is they're having to turn to overseas black markets to try and import the drugs to their state so that they can carry out executions.
1: The government is turning to overseas manufacturers of these drugs because they can only get them on the black market in order to do state-sanctioned executions. Am I Correct. saying that right? What in that You're asshole? saying all of that right.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you think about all the effort that some people are going through, right? When there are children who don't know how to read, when there are people who are starving every night, when there are people who are unhoused, when there are people who need <sighs> mental health first aid desperately, right? Uh, you have all these problems, and yet people insist, like, let's – complete this process that actually isn't making us safer, but we have it on the books. So by golly, it's the law. We need to fulfill the law. Like, I think it's just a, a waste of effort and we could be using that energy and that money for so many more effective things. What you're seeing as well is states right now are trying to enact legislation that would essentially hide the names of pharmaceutical companies from the public so that those pharmaceutical companies could sell to the Department of Corrections in that state. But they also are hiding the amount of money that they are paying these rogue pharmacies, these rogue compound pharmacists who are not abiding by U.S. law, who are not abiding by the FDA, who are not upholding the contracts with other pharmaceutical companies, you know, who have all collectively said, we are not going to go behind each other's backs and create and sell these drugs to departments of corrections. So some states have spent up to $1.4 million or $1.3 million on these poisons, essentially poisons that not even veterinarians use for dogs and cats and other animals. Yeah. These are really out of date drugs. These are really out of date um, methods of execution
1: we really want to, how do I even say this? We want to kill people so badly that we do, that we go to such extremes and spend so much money in order to eradicate people from this earth. And, and and I guess that feeds a sense of justice or like what what do we get out of? I mean, okay, I will acknowledge that I come to this conversation without experiencing any sort of the crimes or my loved ones have not experienced any sort of the crimes that would put someone on death row. So I guess I'm trying to to, to to have a little bit of empathy for people who have experienced devastating crimes that would put someone on death row. But I still just have a harder hard time making the jump to, okay, then yes, I'm okay with our government spending millions of dollars. Well, okay, million dollars trying to get these drugs to kill people. I don't know. Yeah, no.
0: I, I, I totally hear where you're coming from, right? I get accused of not caring for victims a lot because I do mm. anti-death penalty work. A lot of people will say, well, what about the victims? Like, shouldn't we care about the victims? You know, shouldn't we care about what they want? And yeah. I do believe that a lot of people, when they experience the loss of a loved one through violent means... It makes sense that you want that person to suffer and die an excruciating death. I am not here to combat those feelings. I think those feelings mm. are biblical. We know mm. that because we read the Psalms and we read the cursing yeah. Psalms where David, yeah. you know, is like, God, just break in their teeth and happier those who bash the heads of the children of Babylon on the rocks, Right. Yeah, It is biblical yeah. to express your grief and to want people to die and to hand that to God. But we hand that to God who can make mm. sure that our mm. violence doesn't get perpetuated. Right. Yeah. So what we know is that violence that is not transformed is transferred. Mm. And I would argue that our state is actually not giving people real justice through executing victimizers who have participated in murder. Yes. I would argue that execution is cheap justice. It doesn't actually hold people accountable for the wrong that they have done. It doesn't actually have people say, I am sorry for the pain I have caused you. And here's what I am going to do to work to make sure that I never cause that kind of pain again, and that I prevent other people from creating that kind of pain in our society. Here's what I'm going to do to heal what I can for you and your loved ones. Our state, what we do is we separate victims and victimizers in the event of violent crime. And sometimes what we do, which is even more insidious, is we tell victims, OK, here are our services But in order to get these services, you must participate with the prosecution in such a way that results in this kind of sentence. So we have housed our victim services with police, with solicitors and prosecutors. We have not created separate spaces where victims are are are. Victims' needs are met outside of the purview of sentencing and prison requirements mm. or a sense of justice on behalf of those who are charged with doing justice in our society, right? We we make victim services contingent in lots of ways. Now, I know that that's not every service, and I know that there are lots of people in victim services who really have mixed feelings about the death penalty. I know those people. I've talked with those people. But there is a kind of sense where I have also met victims advocates who make it their business to try and uphold the death penalty by going around to murder victim family members and saying, this person isn't executed yet. We should make sure that this person is executed and rile up victim families who just want to be left alone. who are tired of decades of appeals, which is what happens when you have a capital case. You have decades of appeals. You have all sorts of state resources going towards these cases that if somebody was just sentenced to prison terms, like life without a chance of parole, you wouldn't, it, it would all be done. The family wouldn't be confronted in the news every couple of years with the fact that this person is not dead for the violence that they have caused or created. In a way, being a murder victim family member of a um, of a capital crime is is a death sentence in and of itself
1: mm. that is
0: what someone has has described it uh, that's that is what i've read in in uh, victim witness statements
1: yeah I, yeah i hadn't thought about like all of these legal processes like i know they can take such a long time and i didn't think about the re-traumatization or the like long trauma of staying in that being constantly reminded or you know maybe maybe there's a bit of time where you can enter into a space of healing but then it gets brought up again um yeah i had not thought about that from like if the ultimate goal is healing reconciliation you know that kind of model the death penalty it is it it it, it it's antithetical to to those to those goals um And one of the things, right, if we actually care about victims,
0: then why are we spending so much time and money on this case, right, on this person who has caused the crime? Why would we not? In in South Carolina, a death penalty penalty case has $1.3 million more spent on it than a case that is simply life without a chance of parole. And so Mm -hmm. if we actually cared about murder victim family members, why would we not use that money to actually make sure that families have diapers for orphan children, to make sure that when those orphan children grow up, they have the access to school and counseling and college funds, you know that they would, you know that they would have if their provider had had been alive, right? But now mm. that their primary pro- or one of their primary providers is gone, right, right, you know that is missing. How do we make sure that communities? feel a sense of safety, right? We could be using that money to heal whole communities that now feel a kind of rupture and fracture because their neighbor is gone and their neighbor experienced violence. And why, you know, maybe there's a fear of what if this happens to me, right? So there's all sorts of suspicion. There's all sorts of fear. There's all sorts of trauma that is not being addressed. We know so much more about trauma and violence now. Why would we not enact those lessons, with communities, with families, with individuals who are tied to this violence. And why would we not prevent this stuff from happening in the first place too, right? Not only do we need direct care with people who've experienced the aftermath of violence, but we need to make sure that this actually stops happening. So let me tell you a little bit about The death penalty in South Carolina. For as long as the death penalty (laughs) for as long as the death penalty has existed in South Carolina, we have disproportionately executed people with black and brown skin, Mm. people who have had learning disabilities or severe mental illness, people whose victims are white people who are poor. You don't see rich people being sentenced to death. You don't see rich people having a capital crime very much to begin with. Between 1912 and 1962, there were about 240 executions in South Carolina. There are only eight other states that have executed more people than South Carolina. The vast majority of those people are Black. Of the 282 people that South Carolina has executed in our history, you know, from the time that we started keeping official records, which was 1912, 74% of those people are Black. So that's roughly three quarters of the people we have executed are Black, are African American. And some of those crimes are not for murder. Some of those crimes Mm -hmm. are for rape or for assault with intent to ravish. What we know about those crimes, and and, and you know, when they're affiliated with um, white victims, you know, white women, usually this is a case where there are racist attacks against black men for allegedly having relationships, you know, illicit relationships with white women. And what you see is that these men have actually been legally lynched by the state of South Carolina. So this is part of my history. This is part of the work that my organization is trying to undo. So at South Carolinians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, we are seeking to rehumanize those who are on death row, help to restory their narratives, because our media has a specific way that it talks about them. It treats them like monsters. It treats them as unhuman, inhuman. And so we try to to get their stories out into the public. We do some of that by doing community presentations on the death penalty and different people who are connected to our work. We also do this through a pen pal program that we have. So Mm. people who are interested in having a pen pal on death row can connect with us, can email me. And what we do is we assign them a pen pal on death row. And those relationships have actually been really important in our work and continue to be important for anti-death penalty work around the country and around the globe. Not only do we rehumanize people who are on death row, we also try to mobilize communities to actually learn what capital punishment has done to our history as South Carolina and what it's doing for our present. So I've mentioned the, the past and the current racism of the death penalty, the past and the current you know, socioeconomic bias that our death penalty has one of the most pertinent stories of and most shameful parts of our death penalty history in South Carolina, we have the distinction of having executed the youngest person in hmm. the country in the last century. His name was George thingy Jr. He was 14 years old and he happened to be the last person to see two young white girls alive in the 1940s. And 1944 specifically. These two white girls passed by his home, asked where they could pick a specific type of flower, and he pointed them, you know, towards the railroad tracks. These girls' bodies were found there later, and somehow it came up that he was the last person to see them. And so without any kind of due process, without any kind of proper investigation, what happens is police arrest him. And this was in Lu, so around the Clarendon County area near Manning they arrest him. They incarcerate him. They do not let his family come and see him. They do not give him proper legal counsel. They put him on trial. The trial takes less than a day. The jury deliberates for, I want to say maybe 20 minutes or less. And I'd have to double check the specifics of it. And then they say he is guilty. And then they execute him. And all of this happens within an 83-day span of time. No due process. A teenager, right? Uh, Like, barely making it out of the tween stage, right? Uh, And by all accounts, like, a decent student, a good son, somebody who's never committed violence before, has no, no prior records. So it is really unfortunate and awful that we have this as part of our legacy. And in 2014, his case was actually vacated because there were lawyers who said this, this was awful. This was traumatic for an entire community and for a family and, and something needs to be done. And so a judge actually vacated that case in 2014, but this is still something that we need to talk about because this kind of stuff, You know, while maybe somebody isn't executed in 83 days, but people are still not given proper due process. I think we've certainly gotten better at that because in South Carolina, you're seeing that in the last 10 years, only four people have had capital trials. And so we're getting better at defending people and saying, well, wait a second, like, is, you know, was this person just arrested because there was a specific bias? Was this person just not able to speak up or defend themselves? How did this person get into the situation? Another case that I want to highlight for you, Mariah and listeners, is the case of Richard Moore. So this is a case where uh, Richard Moore is an African-American man. He's originally from Michigan, comes down to South Carolina, and he's living in Spartanburg County. And he goes into a convenience store and the clerk behind the counter has three guns And he goes up to the counter and they get into some kind of altercation. Richard comes in unarmed into this store, but they get into some kind of altercation and the clerk pulls guns and they get into a fight and they shoot each other. And Richard leaves, you know, flees. And Richard is given a death sentence. Now tell me how that works I'll tell you how it works because Richard was not tried by a jury of his own peers, the prosecution and the judge and the uh, jury were all people who were white. He was not tried with a single African-American person in hmm. this jury. And, and he's given the death penalty. He's the only person on South Carolina's death row with a, a jury that sentenced him to death. That was all white. Wow. So this and this happened, you know, not that long ago, right? This was just a couple of decades ago. Mm. So this is wild that we we still have to deal with this. And one of the the, you know, the death penalty was stopped briefly in the United States because it was determined, wow, there's a lot of racial bias with the death penalty. And it was brought back in 1976 because the proponents of the death penalty said, well, wait a second, what if we could determine, what if we could show without, without fail, you know, with empirical evidence that we are actually, actually executing the worst of the worst. And so the death penalty was allowed to come back, but it was one of the most controversial decisions of the Supreme Court in 1976. But what you're still seeing is that the death penalty is still filled with all sorts of bias that is reflective of our society in 21st century United States history or culture. Other things we know is that people who are victims of violence go on to perpetrate violence, right? Right. So none of of this happens in a vacuum. Yeah. Most of these people were experiencing profound, you know, (sighs) adverse childhood experiences. I've read some some case files where some, you know, uh, somebody was drinking water from the gutters right, as a child because Ugh. there was no clean water. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are some cases where people tried to get help and, and the hospital said, you don't have insurance and kicked them out. And so their paranoid schizophrenia went untreated or their right. addiction went unaddressed because, oh, well, somebody's unavailable and at a picnic. And so we can't actually see you come back again tomorrow. Well, tomorrow is actually too late. Mm. Um, that's what we know Yeah, and so there are, there are these things and and I you know part of again that's part of the rehumanizing process is you know yeah. giving context giving stories for none of this happens in a vacuum and if you actually look at this person you know there's a chance that they could be your, your uncle right who if things were just a little bit different for him you know your uncle could be on death row and that was yeah. kind of the case where you know where I realized like, oh yeah, I could see how my family, you know, was really, you know, uh, you know, lifted up, you know, away from these kinds of circumstances and these kinds of experiences with the law and with trouble because of our privilege, because of our socioeconomic space that we occupied. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you a little bit about my, like how I decided, um, how I got really drawn into anti-death penalty work.
1: Yeah. I would love to know that.
0: Yeah. So I first started thinking about the death penalty because a friend of mine at Furman, who was the head of the NAACP at Furman University's, you know, chapter, college chapter, she called me up, texted me, said, hey, we're going to have a vigil for Troy Davis. Troy Davis was a man who was executed in 2011 in Georgia For a crime for for murder, but a murder that he likely didn't commit. There were a significant amount of people who said he did it. And then they recanted their witness statements years Mm -hmm. later because they realized, actually, I don't I don't really know if he did it or not. He had three different execution dates to my to my recollection. They they finally executed him on the third one. Mm -hmm. But my friend asked me if I would help kind of represent the chaplain's office at Furman for this vigil. And I was doing a lot of work with the chaplain's office. I was kind of a religious nerd. Still am a religious nerd actually, you know, as you can see. <laughs> yeah. But that was sort of Same. the first time that I, re- <laughs> it was the first time I really thought about the death penalty. Right. I learned that, you know, it's disproportionately given to people who are black. It's disproportionately yeah. given to people with white victims. Um, it's astounding some of the ways that police reports can be filed, you know, to incriminate people and and actually silence them and deprive them of of rights. In, in, and yeah. So that was the first time I thought about the death penalty. But years later in seminary, I learned that my seminary had a, a direct connection to the only woman on death row in at the time, which was 2015. Her name was Kelly Gissendanner and Kelly was sentenced to the death penalty for murder for hire. She didn't actually kill her husband, but she conspired to kill him with her boyfriend at the time. And her boyfriend, interestingly enough, in exchange for information about her participation, he was given a life sentence with a chance of parole. Hmm. Now, During the time that she was incarcerated, she became a Christian, she became sober, she reconciled with her children, and, you know, became, like, a a more involved, like, mom behind bars. Mm. She took theology classes, and she started reading Jürgen Moltmann's Theology of Hope and actually became a pen pal with him, which is kind of astounding, actually. Mm. There's a book called You Shall Not Condemn by Jennifer McBride, which is about their their pen pal connection. She graduated with a certificate of theological studies. And then she also began counseling people through the vents of her cells, (laughs) people who um, were experiencing suicide ideation. Mm. And so... What the corrections officers would do is they would take, you know, these people who were experiencing profound dysphoria and they would put them in the cell next to Kelly and she would basically counsel them back to life. Wow. And she would tell them, you will live and God has got great plans for you. And despite all of those things, despite a former warden being in her corner and advocating for her clemency, none of that was enough to save her. She was executed in September of
1: 2015.
0: Hmm. And there was a worldwide effort to try and save her life, including a letter from the Pope. Right. This was devastating to see. And in that moment, when I was learning about this person, I really saw how Kelly kind of reminded me of a lot of people in my own life, people who I know and people who have a lot of privilege and maybe could have been in Kelly's spot, but weren't because they were wealthy enough to avoid law trouble, right? Uh, And avoid a criminal record. And I was really angry at the time with God because like, here's this person who's on death row and is exhibiting way more change than people who've been given so many chances you know, outside of prison and just keep messing up and keep yeah. not showing up and keep ruining their relationships and keep under functioning and will never get better. And this was a real moment where I, I, you know, kind of was at a crossroads with God in my own person and, and came to the space of, well, I guess I can't really write people off. Mm. You know, as much as I'm hurt by the people who won't change, I still have to believe that that change is possible because God is God Hmm. and God is here to tell me that nobody is beyond redemption and that we are more than the worst thing we've ever done and we are more than the worst thing that's ever happened to us. Hmm. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy but a lot of his work goes into into why I do this work because I see how if things could have been differently for me, for my loved ones, like I could definitely be on death row.
1: Wow, yeah. So you had this experience about learning about this woman and how did you get involved? I came back to South Carolina and
0: I began pastoring in my two small local churches and then the pandemic hit. And so I emailed a law firm that represents the guys on death row here in South Carolina, and there are only men in South Carolina who are on death row. There are thirty six men, and then several months go by, and I get a call from a sa- another lawyer at that same firm who said, "Actually, Hillary, we could use you. There's somebody who's on death row here in South Carolina. I'm going to call this person Lance for the purposes of our con- conversation." And so I said, "Yeah, I would love to be connected to Lance," and so Lance wrote me a letter in summer of 2020 and we've been connected ever since hmm. and lance was the one who actually catapulted me into anti-death penalty work in South Carolina the the personal is you know the statistical be, you know becomes the personal and the personal yeah. becomes political yeah the reason that lance might receive an execution date is uh, well, and and the other piece of that is I, I was told that Lance may receive an execution date in the la- in the next year, and so I said, yeah, I'm here for you. What happened is there was a firing squad bill that was submitted to our legislature in 2021, and this bill would essentially create a firing squad mechanism for people to be executed in the event that lethal injection was not available as an execution method. As I mentioned earlier, lethal injection drugs have not been available for about 10 years now. And South Carolina's store of lethal injection drugs expired in 2013, I believe. Hmm. And so a lot of people, I don't know who had a bee in their bonnet about restarting executions, but they went so far as to say, let's create a firing squad. Um, But first, let's, you know, the first version of the bill was going to make the electric chair, the default method of execution if lethal injection drugs weren't available. And then it got to a certain point in the legislature. And there were some legislators who said, you know what? Like the electric chair is too inhumane. How about we add another method? Like that's what we should do. Let's, let's add the firing squad. That's, that's at least more humane than, than, than the electric chair. Let's give them a choice. That's the least we can do. So That's what happened. We created a firing squad mechanism and we made people choose between the electric chair and the firing squad if they chose lethal injection first as a way to restart methods or to restart executions in South Carolina. And that was the point where I got connected to anti-death penalty work directly in South Carolina Activists sort of descended from different parts of the United States, other people who were connected to the previous iteration of SCADP emerged, and it was decided that there needed to be new leadership. Now, we are really grateful for incredible lawyers here in South Carolina who represent the guys on the row. Uh, They were able to file specific motions that stayed the two executions that were scheduled. And that allowed us time to reorganize as a nonprofit to, you know, do things like change our name with the IRS and to get reconnected to the uh, Secretary of State and to start putting a board together and start figuring out how we want to hire and what our handbook looks like and, you know, who all we needed to be connected to in order to continue this work. What are our, you know, who are the coalition partners that we need most as we as we fight the death penalty, as we abolish it and as we catalyze other kinds of criminal justice reform. One of the things that has really made me think a lot about the death penalty and about how nobody is beyond redemption and how we're more than the worst thing we've ever done. So Lance is somebody who will be the first to tell you that he regrets everything, Hmm. that put him on death row. He never shies away from that. Um, in our pen pal connection, we talked about, you know, all the, the little things that you do when, you know, you talk about the weather, you talk about your family, um, you talk about your regrets. And when Lance got his execution date in 2021, there was a, a night where he called me and he said, Pastor Hillary, I'm really scared.
1: Yes. I know
0: I deserve to die for what I've done, but I also want to live. And I believe that God can use me. And tonight I, I've been really distressed and, and I um, I asked God to give me a word and I flipped through my Bible and I, I found Ecclesiastes, you know, just randomly, right? This is what mm. we do when, you know, we're in distress, like, God, show me a sign. And so he flipped randomly and he landed on Ecclesiastes 1. And you know this, this passage, Mariah, but for those who are not connected to this mm. passage, it's a passage that says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It, it is mm. a, a, a statement of, you know, all of life is meaningless, Because that is what Ecclesiastes does. It it basically is saying all of life is meaningless. Nothing matters. You know, just live your life to the fullest. Right. So what Lance does is he reads this specific passage of how everything is impermanent and nothing matters. And he says, Pastor Hillary, this passage is right. Right. All of life is vanity. And that's why we need to cling to God and to God's word, Hmm. you know, because, because faith in Christ is, is all that matters. Right. And, and, you know, I, you know, believe that this is, you know, this is my, my mission statement and my purpose. And it was sort of this, this awkward moment for me because I, you know, here was this, this person who's going to die and he's taking scripture about the meaninglessness of life, which he's entitled to feel, right? Because he's on death row. And yeah. he's reinterpreting it for a, 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 a space, for, for a message of hope, right? Mm. He's using other scripture and, and this person is, is very well versed in, 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 in Old Testament and New Testament. And, and he is using other scripture to translate this scripture and to give him hope. And and essentially what he does is he sort of looks at this this correctional system that has put him on death row. And he says, "Okay, fine. You say my life is meaningless. You can say that you can strap me to the chair. You can get the injection ready, load up the guns. I don't care because my life matters to God. And that is the only thing that matters to me. And I think about the ways that Lance has really challenged my ability to read scripture, the ways that he has supported me on the outside in moments where I've been particularly low. Um, for for you know different personal and professional reasons, and I just continue to be just sad. Like man, I, uh, I wish more people knew this side of you and I'm going to make sure that I use my voice to talk about you and the hope that you inspire in me and the ways that you make me want to make sure that nobody experiences violence uh, either that that you have participated in or that you've experienced too right Mm. Mm -hmm. so yeah these personal stories inform me and they've helped me you know want to rehumanize people They help me want to mobilize people. They help me want to advocate against the death penalty with power holders and stakeholders. And they also want to, they make me want to help restore people who have been profoundly harmed by the capital system. So I've talked a little bit about murder victim, family members who, who are harmed by the system, right. And and who could be better served if we didn't have it. Uh, We don't talk a lot about death row family members, Uh, but death row family members experience all sorts of stigma and shame and they can't talk about it they have a a really disenfranchised grief because not only has their loved one participated in violence you know but their loved one is now missing as well you know their, their loved one is essentially you know functionally dead in their own lives Mm. because this person is behind bars because this person can't contribute to the household because this person can't be you know super emotionally available certainly not physically available for them the death penalty also harms the people who participate in executions there was an incredible expose in the state newspaper in 2022 about the people who participate in executions and how those people experience moral injury right you know even if they they come to the death penalty and they believe it what participating in executions does what designing execution rituals will do to you is it will chip away at your ability to feel other people's pain it yeah. will cause you to also ignore your own pain as well and so what you've seen what people have reported is extreme substance abuse problems people have reported relationship problems with their spouses and with their other family members people have rep- reported suicide ideation as well and and we should not want to create more harm for people right you know if the death penalty is supposedly the worst you know for the worst of the worst then like why would we invest in a system that is harming the people who are making the system happen in the first place right this is just a practical yeah. question we shouldn't do that. And we don't, like these people who have completed these executions, they also never received psychological care in the aftermath. Mm. They never got counseling. They never got therapy. They might've gotten a chaplain visit from the prison, you know, a prison chaplain visit, right? Somebody who works for the system. But that person is not equipped to handle the kind of trauma that you Experience when you participate in state sanctioned murder right. and premeditated homicide, right? On behalf of the state, on behalf of the Department of Corrections.
1: So you told me that there is a bill that was going to be assigned or has been signed what what is that about can you tell us a little bit about that and then and then I want to know if you have any if you have how people can get involved in in, in this work um, I don't want people to leave this episode feeling powerless or helpless like they can't you know how can people get involved are there any tangible actionable steps that people can take to uh, participate in in this work? Um, of of abolishing the death penalty or or humanizing those on on death row et cetera.
0: yeah so one of the campaigns that we have been working on I'll, I'll tell you a couple of different things that we've been working on one of the biggest mm. things that we've been working on is trying to stop a lethal injection secrecy bill from passing I mentioned earlier about lethal injection secrecy and unfortunately, it passed. So right now, the state of South Carolina is poised to keep secret, not just the names of executioners, which that was already part of the law. But they've amended the law to say that we are not going to share the names of pharmaceutical companies or compound pharmacists who sell, make, you know, will, will transport the lethal injection drugs to us. We're not going to tell you how these drugs are stored whether they are being tested, whether the right people are handling them, whether these drugs are going to be diverted from the Department of Corrections out into the public. There have been some cases where that has happened and where, you know, an opioid crisis, you know, can happen in in different communities because these drugs are not properly stored and they're not properly kept from the wrong people. We will not be able to know any of that. And furthermore, this law that has just passed will criminalize anybody who seeks to speak up and try to make sure that we have transparency around these specific things. Mm. This bill is a government secrecy bill, and it is antithetical to what so many people in in our country have been purporting, right? That our government is, you know, uh, it's too secret. We need more accountability, and we need more transparency. And this bill has doubled down, and it has effectively made these things a state secret. We wouldn't do that with the asphalt companies that pave our roads, right? We have to publish that information. And the fact that different legislators and people in the Department of Corrections are not prepared to give information about lethal drugs, drugs that hospitals can't, you know have the same kinds of lax permissions around, right? We, we wouldn't do this for fentanyl. We wouldn't do this for morphine. We don't do this for Ativan. Why would we do this for these poisons, essentially? So that is going to be the law of the land in South Carolina. There are many secrecy laws in other states as well. Tennessee is one of them. Tennessee was in some ways poised to try and repeal their secrecy law that is no longer the case. But the thing about Tennessee is that there were people who asked for the electric chair over lethal injection because of the ways that lethal injection is so often botched. And this is the thing about executions. There's actually no unharmful, humane way to kill people. Lethal injection, its legacy is Nazi Germany and people who are human rights abusers it's it's a it's part of a euthanasia program, and it's just been refined <laughs> here in 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 South Carolina, um, and other states as well. Now, in 2022, NPR ran a news article that declared the year of 2022 the year of the botched execution, because a full Ugh. third of lethal injection executions were botched. And so a botched execution is essentially an execution that takes longer than the the several minutes that it's allegedly supposed to take. And some of these executions went on for hours and didn't even actually execute the person that they were trying to kill. Uh, So imagine how traumatizing that is for the people who are trying to do this work, right? Uh, Corrections officers participating in executions. uh, And Something else about that. Uh, corrections officers who participate in these executions are the ones who are, you know, inserting the central lines, the ones doing the injecting. We don't actually have doctors and nurses participating in these executions because that's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. So we are taking non medical personnel, making them participate in these executions. Uh, so, I mean, all of this is just human rights abuses, right? Um, In Tennessee, um, you know, at least five people on death row opted for the electric chair over lethal injection because of the the number of lethal injections that are botched and the ways that people are made to experience profound pain when they are botched, right? There are experiences where people, uh, you know, who are witnessing these executions have heard, you know, those who are strapped to the gurney yelling because their skin is on fire or because the drugs didn't mix correctly. And, you know, you see people convulsing, right, in pain um, because of the effects that these different drugs are having, you know, breaking up your lungs and and essentially making you suffocate um, because, uh, yeah, because your lungs are being destroyed. Hmm. This is a lot of information, What I want to say is that there are people all over the country who are trying to end the death penalty and support for the death penalty is at the lowest it's ever been. I want to say it's Mm. about 55%. If you want more exact information, you can go to Death Penalty Information Center. Just type that in on Google and they will have all the information for you, more than you could ever want. Actually, Mm. they have an annual report that gives an outline of who has been executed the different surveys around executions in in different states across the nation. But that's the lowest it's ever been. And that's down significant points from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what I also want to say is that people in South Carolina know that there are discrepancies about who gets executed and why they get executed. And so I really do believe that we are on the precipice of some really important work. One of the campaigns I'm really excited to tell you all about is we are starting to do work with posthumous pardons. So I mentioned earlier how there were people who were executed, um, you know, legally lynched in South Carolina. Um, There are certainly people who were, executed for crimes that they they never committed. We know we've had people who've had innocence claims and the state has vacated those innocence claims. We've never actually exonerated from uh, anybody from death row here in South Carolina. And one of the things we're doing is we are meeting with descendants of a particular person whose loved one was likely executed for a crime they didn't commit in South Carolina. And so this is the beginning of... Um, some long due justice, right? Making sure that people people's stories are heard, that people feel like their stories are are, are held as well. The death penalty, I said, has made victim, victims out of lots of different people, but especially uh, Black South Carolinians. And I want to make sure that our work is anti-racist. And that is indeed one of the driving pieces of of anti-death penalty work in in our present-day movement, and I'm thrilled to be connected to so many different people. One of the ways that you can support SCADP is by joining our newsletter. So I encourage you to go to www.scadp.org slash newsletter when you join our newsletter. You can get the latest as far as our campaigns. You can hear all the really cool work that we are doing. If you're interested in learning more about the death penalty in South Carolina, we have virtual book clubs that cover all different Mm -hmm. facets of the death penalty, whether it's a personal experience of someone formerly incarcerated on death row or somebody who was a murder victim family member, or maybe somebody who is sort of looking from the outside and wants to to do a, a history of the death penalty in the United States or a history of uh, a specific kind of execution method. We have all of those there. And we have lots of different videos that are up on our website. We have different speaking events featuring impacted voices uh, from the death penalty. We have uh, lots of different ways that you can support us financially. And you can go to scadp.org donate if you feel inclined to do that. If you're curious about where you can find, you know, maybe you don't live in South Carolina and maybe you're trying to find a place close to you that is doing Mm -hmm. work locally around you or your state, on our website, there's also a resources page where you can look at different groups. And if you don't see your group or your state listed, please email me. My email is info at scadp.org. And I can help connect you to nationwide or statewide groups. Some of those groups focus on uh, connecting with people, you know, who are imminently about to be executed. Some of these groups focus more on the legal support side of things. Some of these groups support causes that are tangentially connected to the death penalty, right? Maybe it's a parole board reform campaign. Maybe it is something like the death row exoneration campaign or a posthumous pardon campaign kind of like what we're doing here Uh, maybe you have connections that an anti-death penalty group needs and let me tell you we are all about making as many friends as possible that is a way that you can connect with us as well if you'd like to be a pen pal to somebody on south carolina's death row you don't have to live in south carolina you can live in japan if you want to and you can still write to these guys they get mail from all over the United States, all over South Carolina, all over the world, and they would love to be connected to you. Again, you can contact me at info at scadp.org.
1: Okay. So to kind of, to summarize, you know, people coming from this episode, you know, receiving all of this, this information, um, so practical, practical ways we can interact with your work um are to donate and do you know like if people would go and donate where where, and maybe you describe this a little bit but where would their money go like what efforts would their money go towards
0: yeah so um we definitely have a, a kind of general funds allocation that supports the operating expenses of the organization but if you want your okay. funds to be designated to a specific thing that we are doing or if you have questions mm. about maybe helping to bolster a specific campaign, we are always interested in connecting you to what you are interested in. So, again, you can talk okay. to me more more deeply about that at or in a deeper way about that at info yeah. at scadp.org.
1: And is this something that, like, churches could get involved in if they wanted, like, to have, like – I don't know, would you speak at certain churches or would you be able to connect Sunday school classes if they wanted to join for a a Sunday school hour or or get involved in your book club somehow? Absolutely, yes. I can speak to people in person or I can speak to people over
0: Zoom or whatever is the easiest platform that people prefer. Um, I can be as accessible as you need me to. So please (laughs) uh, feel free to contact me and I can do that.
1: You will fly to Japan to talk to
0: people, and if if you are willing to pay for those expenses, I will fly <laughs> to Japan and and do that. Yes.
1: Well, um, Hillary, would it be okay if I if I end our time today with a blessing to bless you and your work and all of the baddies out there watching and and listening to this episode? That would be lovely. Thank you, Hillary, and all of you baddies out there. May you go from this episode lit with the fire of God's redemptive, restorative, holy justice. May you enter this work of seeing each person through God's eyes, knowing that the fingerprint of God is on each and every person, no matter what they have done or what has been done to them. And may you go knowing that if you enter into this work of abolishing the death penalty, or wherever you are living out God's call in your life, know that you do not do this alone, that you do not do this just on your own power, that God is living among and working in you. And yeah, you, you are not alone. And we are in this holy work together. Amen. Thank you so much, Hillary, for being on and sharing this work. That's all for this episode of Called to Be Bad. Keep being your bad, beautiful selves, and I will see you next time.